to get started tonight on a lesson that is really um, the beginning of what is probably a series. I'm not really formally calling it a series because I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know week to week exactly what it's going to look like, but I'll remind you of why we're doing this. Um, over the last couple of months, we talked about the church and what the church looks like in the book of Acts, what the church looks like to Jesus in the Gospels, what the church looks like to the epistle writers. Uh, we didn't do too much with church history, say 100 AD up till now, how's the church changed? We talked a little bit about that. My goal was not church history 101. It was really, what does it mean to be a member of the body of Christ? And what does that mean um, independent from a building? Because church is a place you go, but that's a cheap definition once you start to study the church. So after eight or ten weeks, I don't know, I never did number them up, um, I kind of hit a wall and hit a red light, felt the Spirit move us into something else. And the, the landing spot last week was in regard to um, principalities and powers, the things that are happening behind the scenes, but not, not I'm tried, trying to get you to think not so much in the, in the demonic way of these invisible spirits floating around in the air or some devil with a trident and a pointy tail, but rather the systems behind the things that oppose the world or that run the world, the powers that be, if you would. And in that, we ended up in Ephesians, or at least I think we actually opened in Ephesians, uh, which we're going to do again tonight. And we talked about the fact that God put the church on the planet for a reason, and it's a reason that is not talked about all that much. When we got to the end of the lesson, we landed at what I think is the one thing that the church has that is their piece of equipment to confront those powers, to overcome principalities and spiritual wickednesses in high places. And that is the cross of Christ. That's the thing that makes the church what the church is. The fact that Jesus died on a cross, rose from the grave, and that we do not just take this as some ceremonial thing, something we talk about at Easter, something we sort of believe, but maybe not. You know, what we really believe is Jesus was a good guy with really good teaching, that cross stuff's maybe. No, that's not the, we that's not the weaponry the church has, is a maybe crucified Jesus. It's, it's genuinely to believe that the cross means something. Now, I've taught and preached the cross, I guess, my entire ministry. I've, uh, I've written books on the cross. I've uh, done series on the cross. I've written lesson sets on the cross. Um, honestly, think I've got a pretty good handle on it. And so when the Holy Spirit began to push, prompt, pull me, whatever, however you want to say it, uh, let's talk about the cross. Um, I won't say I argued, but I thought, well, I got a lot, you know, I've, I've covered this ground pretty good. Our group understands it. Um, but this week taught me that there's so much more that I think the Holy Spirit wants to do in this because, and here's kind of how I want to begin the process before we read one verse. The cross of Jesus Christ has been viewed through individualistic terms. You thinking about what Jesus did for you. I think about what Jesus did for me. In fact, it's how we promote the cross. We say to people, Jesus died on the cross for you, right? Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And then we even pinpoint it down even harder and we say, if you had been the only person on earth, Jesus would have died on the cross for you. And what we're saying is, is that God loves you so much and your sin is so bad that God, if you were all that it were, there was here, would have come down and died at Calvary. And what we've done is we take the cross and we individualize the cross. 
And we even promote it that way as a way of understanding it. We say, when you see Jesus on the cross, see yourself on the cross. When you see Jesus dying at Calvary, put your sins into Jesus. Don't put my sins into Jesus. Put your sins. We try to get a, that's our way of trying to get people to own themselves at the cross, individuals. Not here to say that that's not right. I, I, I think all of the things I just said are part of the cross message. They are very real, very true. But in doing that, it's hard to understand how Paul lands here. I want to title this tonight, The Scandal of the Cross. And I want to start tonight where we started last week in Ephesians 3.10. It's difficult to understand why Paul would say this if the cross is simply an individualistic message. This is a verse we read last week, but we had a bunch of stuff around it. I want to get rid of the stuff around it tonight, just trim the fat and get right down to the heart of it to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So whatever the various wisdom of God is, and I'm going to try to distill that down over the next several weeks into what I think is the message of the cross, but that wisdom is... The, the job is to, is to buy the church to pro, proclaim and present that wisdom to the principalities, to the powers in heavenly places, to all the things behind the scenes, all of the things that dominate the systems of the world. If the cross is individualistic, then why is this the mission of the church? Because a lot of us have felt as if our spiritual warfare is individually against principalities and powers. But Paul thinks the warfare of the church is against principalities and powers. So it's not just me out here fighting demons. It's the ecclesia of the church standing in opposition to the dominating powers of the systems of this world. Here's another one we used last week. I'm, I know I'm giving a couple of repeats, and I don't like repeats because you don't get anywhere if you do the same thing over and over again. But this, we, we kind of hit a landing spot last week that was the same runway we're taking off from this week. So in, in a way, we need to do that. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our actual fight is not against actual people, but don't just think actual people. It's also not in the actual realm. The church, the believer, is not fighting in the way the world fights. This isn't just some verbal spat. It's not fisticuffs. It's not war. It's not guns. It's not missiles. That's not how we're going to combat evil in the dark and the darkness. But against the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts, against the wickedness that happens in the heavenly places. And then this one this week really, this is my theme. This is where I really, if we're going to take off every week, if we're going to read the same verse every week, which I don't do, um, We've done that in stretches, but this would probably be it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. And there are two amazing ironies that happen in Galatians 6, 14. The first irony is the fact that Paul would boast in the cross. There's nobody in their right mind that boasts about a gas chamber. Nobody in their right mind that boasts about an electric chair. Nobody in their right mind that boasts about a guillotine. That's what the cross is. The cross is an instrument of death. It's the place of an execution. Nobody boasts about getting taken to death row. 
What's my great bragging point? I'm, I'm on death row. That's one of the great ironies. And the other is that Paul says, I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. A cross that cuts both ways. My cutting, their cutting, all cutting, everything that needs cut, everything that needs to die, dead in the cross. I'm crucified to the world, world cosmos in the Greek. Not just the physical planet, but everything about this thing. I'm crucified to everything about this thing, and everything about this world is crucified to me. God forbid that I would find pride in anything else. I'm dead to it, it's dead to me. And when you see cosmos or you see world, think principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. I'm dead to the, to the principalities and the spiritual wickedness in high places, and those things are dead to me as well. That gets our plane up off the ground tonight. The fact that we have permission, I'm kind of hunting for the right word there, I'll stay with it. The fact that we sort of have permission from one of the great writers of the New Testament that if we're going to brag, we brag in the one thing no one would ever brag about. We brag in the cross of Christ. And this is why I think the wisdom that, of God that the church has that, are going, that is going to be used to bring down the principalities and power structures of this world. And by the way, that is our role. Not escape a world that's circling the drain and going to hell. The role of the church is not to watch the world circle the drain, go to hell. And in order to help them circle the drain and go to hell, Christ comes and takes the church out of here so that the world can go to hell faster. The church is an instrument by which God's wisdom is distilled down and projected outward onto the principalities and powers of this world not so God can lose, but so that God's love exemplified through the cross can transform the world around us. So out of the blocks tonight, and I know I'm preaching to the choir with this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And there's a lot of people that watch that are coming from a hundred different backgrounds and a thousand different theologies. As far as I'm concerned, You're not going to see the church as much of an agent to actually combat the forces of darkness if the end game of the church is to get out of here in the hour of maximum danger. So the world gets worse. There are problems. Things go wrong. Things aren't going well. And then the world is, the church is just sort of grabbed up and out of here. And, and I know you know what I'm talking about from, say, an eschatological standpoint. At the same time, what we have and what we are are a people who are anticipating God to do something on the earth, but expecting that the change God is going to do is not going to come from an external source, but is going to come from within his church. So that the church is the equipment and we have some kind of message that makes us unique, that out of that message comes the very thing that drops the principalities and the powers of this world, that we actually can win, we can make a difference in the world because we have the equipment inside the church to actually make that difference and that we are carrying with us something that is so diametrically opposed to the principalities and the powers of the world that if we could just present it, it would start to make the difference 
if the church is in any way co-opted by the principalities and powers of the world and becomes in some way like those principalities and powers in the world, then it's less effective, which is why I land on the cross of Christ, because it's the thing that makes us unique, not principles, not morality codes, not commandments. Anyone can come up with that. You can come up with a list to tell people how to live right. You can come up with a list of how to make your life better. You can come up with economic plans. You can come up with governmental plans. You can come up with financial plans and marriage plans, how to raise kids. You can come up with systems of, of, of code and whatever, but nobody would land on stepping into death and dying in order to overcome. So the cross makes us unique. The cross is a scandal. The cross is the part of our faith the part of our presentation, the part of the wisdom of God that none of us would have come up with. I like what Walter Wink said. If, if Jesus had not existed, we could not have made him up. I would say the same thing about the cross. If the cross was not the centerpiece of Christ's message, we never would have wrote it into his story. For people that act like the Bible is made up by men, why in the world did they include the story of the cross and the resurrection? You do not let your hero die at the hands of the bad guy. You, you, at best, you'd pull him off the cross right as he's about to die and do what I told you, the comic book that we read last week, the, the, the comic book I'd found online of Jesus pulls his hands off the spikes and pulls his feet off the cross and Jesus with his six pack beats up Zeus with punches and elbows and... and because what he does is so, what he actually does is he hangs there and dies. And that's scandalous. Let's find out why it's scandalous. I think that's the point of, it's not just the point of tonight, it's really the point of where we're going to go in the next few weeks. To land on the cross is more than just the instrument of my individual salvation. Though it is my individual salvation, but it's way more than that. And thank God it's way more than that. Let's use Paul. 1 Corinthians 1, I've told you for a long time that 1 Corinthians 1 is an important passage because Paul does what I call, a phrase that I, I kind of coined, maybe I'm sure someone else thought of it, but I haven't read it, where Paul kind of redeems the cross. He tries to sort of buy the cross as something better than merely the place of Christ's execution. I want to amend that statement. I've said that for years. 1 Corinthians 1 is where Paul redeems the cross. I actually want to say 1 Corinthians 1 is where Paul just gives up and steps into the scandal. Because the cross is a scandal. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul just goes, all right. It is a scandal. But what's, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with the cross if the cross is a scandal? I picked this spot because this is a moment, three verses, 22 to 24, where Paul really lands on it maybe better than any other spot. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks, Greeks in both spots, all three spots right here, Greeks better translate Gentiles. This is really a, just a, so, so think two sort of religious mindsets. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, that message is a stumbling block. To the Greeks, that message is foolish. So to one set, it's a problem to preach a crucified Christ to the Jewish mindset. To the other set, you're just stupid. So it's a, it's a, it's a religious problem and it's, just, it's an intellectual problem. Okay, your cross is either a religious problem because we don't need somebody to die for us. We can do this. Or your cross is a stupid problem because why in the world would you follow a dead man and why would you follow a loser? 
That's the, that's the sort of the Gentile idea of power. Don't follow losers. Don't follow people that die. Don't follow people who, who are destroyed. To the Jews of stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, Christ, the wisdom of God. Remember this from Ephesians. We opened with this. One of the great mysteries is that God is going to give the wisdom of God to His church so that His church can show the principalities and powers of the world the wisdom of God. Notice that the wisdom of God, Christ is the power of God, Christ is the wisdom of God. What Christ? Not just baby Jesus lying in a manger. The Christ that's the power of God and the Christ that's the wisdom of God is we preach Christ crucified. A crucified Christ is God's power. A crucified Christ is God's wisdom. This is why I say that the cross, a crucified Christ, is the wisdom by, with, by which the church stands opposite to the world. Not in our principles, not in our moralities, not in our programs. Most of those we co-opt anyway from business models and governments. The cross is completely unique. That's ours. And if we present it the way Jesus dies on it, if we present it the way the New Testament presents it, we have a piece of equipment the principalities and powers of the world cannot stand against. That's literally world-changing stuff. Look at the phrase, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, eight, and this is where I want to land with our title tonight, because I know you don't see the word scandal, but it's there. To the Jews, a stumbling block. That next screen. Stumbling, stumbling block is from a single Greek word, scandalon, which you don't have to really have real good etymology <laughs> to figure out where the English word scandal is born. And so the English scandal from the Greek scandalon, which is a word that originally was used to describe the part of the trap to which bait is attached. So think mousetrap. And we'll see why mousetrap makes for a pretty good allegory here in just a moment. But think mousetrap, the part to which the bait sits on, was originally in the Greek language called the scandalon part. In the New Testament, the word scandalon is only used metaphorically. They never are actually talking about a trap in the New Testament. They're talking about something else as a trap, something else as a scandalon. And it's always, always used metaphorically and ordinarily of anything that arouses prejudice, anything that becomes a hindrance to others or causes them to fall by the way. So to call the cross a scandalon, a word Paul uses brilliantly, he is saying the cross is something that has aroused prejudice, something that has become a hindrance to people, something that has caused them to fall by the way. Now, in 1 Corinthians terms to the Jews, He's a stumbling block to the Greeks' foolishness. Say it this way. To a religious mindset, the cross is unnecessary. The cross is a hindrance because I don't need, A, I don't need anybody to die on my behalf, but let's get rid of the individual aspect. If I'm a Jew in the first century, I'm waiting for my land to come back to me and I'm waiting for Caesar to get what's coming to him. For you to tell me that God sent his only son as my savior that my family's been waiting on for generations and the way it ended was he lost. <laughs> well, that's a scandal 
Don't act as if that's some pathway to higher salvation because I'm not buying it. I've already got Moses and I've already got the Ten Commandments and I've already got the feast days and I've already got the temple. Why in the world would I follow a dead guy on a tree? That's a scandal. The Gentiles are just over here going, y'all are stupid. That's the, the Greeks and the Gentiles are going, this is stupid. Why are we talking about this? Romans killed another dude on a cross. They kill thousands and thousands of dudes on crosses. Why in the world is this guy any different? Why would you follow him? This isn't saving a soul. So you got sort of two diametrically opposed ways of thinking of this, which by the way, are still the two ways we think about the cross for the most part, which is, I only want to see the cross as the way that God is eventually going to smash people. Don't tell me that the whole game plan was Jesus was just going to die at the hands of enemies. We want to be winners, not losers in this church. And then out in the parking lot, somebody's going, those people at church are stupid. I mean, still got the same responses to the cross basically happening all the time. But let's think about the cross in our terms, not theirs. I wonder, it's kind of a lengthy musings by me, so, you know, hold on, do with it what you will. I wonder if we've almost domesticated the cross. You know, it's kind of a wild animal out there, and we've softened the edges down at Calvary. We've wiped all the blood off. You know, we took the spikes out, took Jesus off of it, polished it up, and covered it in gold. The cross has become this shiny thing. It makes for good wall art, it makes for good jewelry, and it makes for a sweet tattoo. And probably for good reason. But to see the cross the way the early church did requires that we remove the sentimentality of sacrifice. Get rid of that first. Get rid of the he did that for me business because that's not their first thought when they thought of the cross. He did that for me. And this is why I think we need to stop only making the cross individual because if we only make it individual, it's like Jesus died for me. Okay, great. But that tends to be why we stick it on the wall and tattoo it on our deltoid because it's my individual mode of salvation. But stop with that for a moment. It's okay to have that, but think about it in their terms. Get rid of the whole sacrifice part. And we need to start to accept that the cross was a place where strangers, criminals, and losers died a humiliating and shameful death. Because that's what it was. Losers died on crosses. Strangers died on crosses. You died naked on the cross. They took your clothes off of you and they hung you in public. Sometimes they tied you with ropes and starved you to death. Some people stayed on the cross for seven, eight, nine days until they couldn't breathe. They soiled themselves on the cross and the ground beneath them. They were laughed at. They were mocked to death. You prayed you'd die of a heart attack before it took long enough to die of starvation. Sometimes they drove nails into the hands and the feet so that they could die a little faster, but so that also the excruciating pain and the motion would encase their heart in fluid and choke it out until they literally had an aggressive form of congestive heart failure on crosses. This is why when the spear went into Jesus' side, blood and water flowed because the water that had built around his heart and only a few hours of breathing up and down on the cross burst out that world. And Jesus is, of course, off the cross because they're trying to fulfill the Torah demand that the body not be hanging there on the Sabbath day. And so they ask for his body, but under normal circumstances, he would have stayed there up to a week. This was the way the Romans treated those who died 
on their crosses. And we need a little bit of that mentality when we think of the cross because that helps us think about the scandal of it. And here's one more. It was also used only by the Romans. There was no other, there was no other civilized people in the world that crucified their victims. It was used exclusively by the Romans and it was used as a symbol of their power and a symbol of their authority. By crucifying, they were embarrassing you to death and showing you we are the most powerful empire in the world and there's nothing you can do about it. Romans did not crucify their own. Roman citizens could request to be beheaded and the Roman government allowed them to do so. Strangers did not get to request. They died in shame. When Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, he is saying, we preach the naked man that died on the cross. Strangers, criminals, and vagabonds die at the hand of the Roman Empire. We preach that. To the Gentiles, that's a scandal. To, to, to the Jews, that's a scandal. To the Gentiles, he goes, that's stupid. Why would we follow this? I want to take a moment and I want to put ourselves into the spiritual mindset of this group of people, if we can. Let's start with Jesus, all right? Go, go from Jesus to Judaism and then kind of bring it in, into where we are and what we can do with the cross. We think of the book of Psalms, we think songbook, and we're not wrong. They would sing the songs and they would sing them in synagogue, but they would sing them at home. But you could also think prayer book. The book of Psalms was the prayer book of an ancient Hebrew. And while they did not have it in prayer book form, like we might have a prayer book that we fold up and put in our pocket or put in our purse or carry in our briefcase or wherever so that we can say prayers, they put them in their heart. That's why the Old Testament says, these words will I hide in my heart that I might not sin against God. That was an old Hebrew way of saying, if you want to know what you should pray, memorize the prayer book. When you get into the book of Psalms, you're hearing the sounds of Israel, their lament, their praise, their prophecy. You also hear about Jesus. Now, the name Jesus never appears in the book of Psalms. Why would it? They didn't know he was going to be named Jesus. But they did know that God was going to send something. They didn't even really categorize it as son, but God's going to send his man. God himself's going to show up. He's going to send his king, his Messiah, his Savior. And so frequently in the Gospels, we start to see Jesus. And then into the epistles, we start to see Paul start to transpose Jesus into those texts. I want to show you one because I want to show you that this idea of a scandal is not new to Paul. It was actually an idea that if they'd been paying attention to their own prayer book, they might have picked up. Listen to Psalm 69, 16. And I want to read this and I want you to know that Jesus did not write this, but I want to see if you can see Jesus here. And if you can't, all the way up to the end, you will, all of a sudden, if you remember the cross. This is what I love about reading the Psalms. Because sometimes you'll think, well, that might be Jesus. And then all of a sudden, something will happen so blatant that it looks like it was pulled out of the pages of the Gospels. And you'll go, that must be Christ. And if that's the case, this takes on a new meaning. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. I'll, I'll, I'll give this away. Just act like this is Jesus praying from the cross. And you'll see why in a minute. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Do not hide your face from your servant. I'm in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. 19. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. These are words someone might say hanging naked on a cross, the hands of their enemies. Reproach has broken my heart. I'm full of heaviness. 
I looked for someone to take pity. There was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Now you might be reading this and going, eh, how do you really know that's Jesus? And then stuff like this happens. 21. They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Which is ripped straight from the passion story of them stabbing a sponge with a spear and sticking it in vinegar mixed with gall and putting it up to the lips of Jesus on the cross. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. And do you know what word pops up right here in the Greek in the Septuagint version? Let their table become a scandal before them and their well-being a trap. Let what happens at the moment I drink that vinegar become a scandal on the people that are putting me there. So we've got an idea way before Paul borrows the word in 1 Corinthians that the Jesus that prays, the Jesus that goes to Calvary is going there with the idea that a scandal might be what takes him there. Here's their, own, here's their prophetic literature. Look at Isaiah 8, verse 11. The Lord spoke this to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people. God, I wish the American church would read verse 12. Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So part of the prophetic warning of God is stop running after what everybody else thinks is going on. Listen for the wisdom of God. Verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but he will also be scandal. He will be a stone of stumbling. He'll be a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. He'll be a trap. He'll be a snare. There's your original usage of the word scandal on. That which causes the trap. He'll be a trap. He'll be a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the first thought from the prayer of Jesus in Isaiah 69, or Psalm 69, to the prophetic word of Isaiah 8, the first thought of Israel in regards to the cross could have been, had they been paying attention to their text, this could be the scandal that we heard about. So when Paul to the Corinthian church defends the cross, he leans right into it. He goes, guess what? The cross is the scandal. The cross is exactly what Psalms said it would be. It's exactly what Isaiah 8 said it would be. Stop looking for this in your future, Paul says. It's in your past. It's called Calvary. The cross is the place of the great scandal, and I think the early church accepted that. The early church slowly began to accept the cross for what it is, a scandal, and they had scripture to prove it. We just showed you. It is not the place. I want you to see what it is, not what it is. I thought about putting these on their own screen, but I just, I want to lay it all out there for you together, and I want to break it down individually, but I want you to think about this sentence. It is not the place that becomes the impetus for God's eventual vengeance on man. That's how some people have seen the cross. God's going to look down at the cross. He's going to judge the people that put him there. He's going to, he's going to come back and destroy that generation. Come back and destroy that race of people. Come back and destroy the empires of man. Come back and destroy all wicked and evil. Come back. We, we've always got him. And why? Because of the cross. 
Because of what they did to an innocent man at Calvary. And the cross then becomes this boiling pot of the wrath of God. This moment where God looks down and goes, how dare you do that to perfect innocence. And that's what causes the comic book writers of the world to get to the end of their precious little comics and pull Jesus' hands off the cross because surely God's fired up about you thinking you can get by with killing his only begotten son. It is the place. Where God steps into man's vengeance. Sort of takes man's violence head on. Willingly. To be overcome by the vengeance. To be overcome by the violence. Thus, the only possible way he can remove its power is to just take it into himself. Not take it, turn it around, <laughs> and punch the world with it. But literally just take it into himself. Within a few centuries, Augustine called it Muscapula di Boli, Crux Domini, Latin for, this became a big rallying cry, 4th century. The Lord's cross <laughs> is the devil's mousetrap. And so some of the early, say, 4th, 5th century gospel doctrine began to turn the cross toward the place where the enemy slipped into the trap. He thought he was setting on God, but slips into the trap that God is setting for, the, for evil because the violence enacted at G against Jesus on the cross becomes death to that violence. It's where violence and wickedness and vengeance go to die, is the cross. Because Christ steps into our death. Steps in, doesn't fight violence with violence, but acquiesces to it. Steps into it as the loser. I wanted to read you another Augustine quote. This one's a little lengthy, but... I thought this was cool. The devil exulted when Christ died, and by that very death of Christ, the devil was overcome. He took food, as it were, from a trap. He gloated over the death as if he were appointed a deputy of death. That in which he rejoiced became a prison for him. The cross of the Lord became a trap for the devil. The death of the Lord was the food by which he was ensnared. And behold, our Lord Jesus Christ rose again. Where is the death which hung upon the cross? Where is the reviling of the Jews? Where is the pride and haughtiness of those who shook their heads before the cross saying, if he is the Son of God, let him come down from the cross. Boy, that phrase, if he is the Son of God, let him come down from the cross, which happens at the foot of the cross, is the cry still of so many. God's really going to show out when he comes down off that cross and shows this world. That shows we don't understand it. I love this last line. He did more than they demanded in their rev revelings for. It is greater to rise from the tomb than to come down from the cross. Christ's victory is not to come off of the cross to show them. His victory is to die and then bring life out of where there was nothing. As the author to Hebrews would say, we land this tonight with this text. Hebrews 2, 14, 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Jesus shared in flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now according to Hebrews 2.14, the devil has been, his power is destroyed. People giving the devil all kinds of credit don't understand that death Jesus stepped into death to defeat death so there could be no more fear of death. 
and to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So our fear goes to die in Christ's cross. This is the first of many steps we're going to take together. The first step I thought was necessary to get us back to the scandal thinking of the cross, to where the cross is a scandal, to where the cross becomes a place where we realize shame and suffering and violence was enacted upon Jesus. That it isn't God winking and going, aha, they're going to think they went. No, it's Jesus stepping into them winning. He lets them win over him. He walks into that defeat so that it has no power over us and so that the resurrection can be the springboard out of which great things happen. The cross is a lot of things. We'll explore many of them. But what a place to start. I've been dwelling on this today, this idea of Father, get me back to where I can see that the cross is a scandal. Only when I can see that it is a scandal can I respect why it's a scandal. And when I start to respect why it's a scandal, I'll realize the Christ that I follow. And it might make me less violent. And it might make me less retributive. It might make me less vengeful. Not more, maybe less, because I'll realize that Christ faced all of those things and walked into them for me. So that my response doesn't have to be the blood of Abel. My response can be the blood of Jesus. First in many steps, the scandal of the cross. Father, thank you for this word tonight. Thank you for the help. Uh, and, and, and we feel so like we can never really land in the right spot. We just keep groping into the darkness trying to grab this thing, this idea and I kind of think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think the cross is supposed to be so unbelievable that we realize there's no way man would have thought to do this way. Nobody would have come up with this. And when we can embrace that as the great scandal, we, we, maybe we got a starting point by which the church can do something unusual. Because we think we've got really good messages of hope and peace and how to transform governments and fix families. The reality is, is all the religions of the world have been coming up with all that stuff too. What we learn, we don't learn in a political science class. What we learn, we don't learn at the foot of the Buddha. We learn at the scandal of the cross. God, may we be in awe. To go, what does this mean? That our, what we believe is God in flesh would, would die. And if we can start to get anything out of that, Father, I think that's, our transformation, and it's the only thing that's going to work against the systems of this world. Thank you for this adventure. Teach us what you would have us to know and help us to get out of the way and learn how to listen. In Jesus' name, amen.